There was no such thing as an irrational exuberance about a decision. Most decisions actually have a worst case attached to them. And I just tell myself, if the worst is not bad enough, then why won't you do it? Over time, I realized that it's a combination of people and process and product. You know, this trifecta really matters. To say that we got to have an operating system of our own, as opposed to depending on Apple itself, you know. In fact, had it not been for that, we would not be a company that we are today because we own our own stack. This notion of empathy, where don't expect it to come to where you are right now. Over time, as they trust you, they will be thick-skinned about things because there'll be a ton of naysayers as you go public as well. So we have been very, very deliberate about the fact that, look, being public doesn't mean we change the way we used to be. If you need to have staying power to be a company that really survived the test of time, you will have to refactor. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Dhiraj Pandey, the founder of Nutanix, to founder Real Talk today. Dhiraj is a true entrepreneur. In addition to founding, he's CEO and chairman of Nutanix, which is a cloud computing software company on a mission to make infrastructure invisible. Prior to founding Nutanix, Dhiraj was VP of engineering at Astrodata, now part of Teradata, where he helped build the product and its engineering team from the ground up. And prior to that, he was at Oracle, where he managed the storage engine group for the Oracle database team. He's co-authored numerous patents in the area of distributed databases as well. Dirich has built Nutanix from founding just a decade ago to over 5,000 employees with over 1.2 billion in annual revenue. He took the company public in late 2016, and it currently carries over a $5 billion market value. I'm so excited to be speaking to him today. Dirich, welcome to Founder Real Talk. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. You know, your personal story is really a remarkable one. Um, you grew up in India, and your very first plane ride was to come to the U.S., to UT Austin, to start a PhD program in computer science? That is correct, yeah. And you worked in Silicon Valley uh, for a summer, shortly after starting your PhD, and eventually it seems like you got the startup bug. You ultimately didn't conclude your PhD and went into the tech industry, went to work in the tech industry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are pretty unconventional decisions, given that you know you you grew up in India and, and hadn't obviously been out of the country prior to to coming to the U.S. What drives you to make these big decisions in life that have some risk attached? And um, was the idea that you'd found a company part of the calculus for you, even from an early early days? Yeah, you know uh, this uh, notion of taking risk has been with me for a while, and the first big one that I took was in 1992 when I really wanted to pursue computer science at IIT, this Indian Institute of Technology. I had gotten a good rank the first time. This is all India rank. You know, you actually need to be sorted uh, globally to really get the right major in the right campus. 
And I had a rank of 1,420 and I got into civil engineering at, at the IIT campus that I wanted to go to. And two months after I joined, I'm like, you know what, I need to quit and then retake the exam again. And oh, everybody wow. was like, wow, you probably are taking a chance and you might never get in. And the next year could be very different. You might fall sick, all these things. And I figured, uh, you know, the chances of really getting computer science are higher if I took the exam again rather than try a major change, as we call it, brand change back in the day or something, you know, right. the probabilities, I did the math myself. So, you know, and my parents were always supportive, like, look, you should do what, what you feel is right. And this is when I was, you know, 17, you know. And, wow. Um, obviously, I took the exam again. I was in the top 100. I got to computer science. You had to be in top 100 of 200,000 people to oh really get into computer science, actually, you know. So you, you had a lot of, uh, you bet on yourself. Uh, yeah, that, and that I think, you know, there was always this thing about what's the worst? I mean, I always uh, thought about if the worst is not bad enough, then you do it. And yeah. I figured, you know, if I don't get into computer science, I probably will pursue physics and I can get into other things because physics was the other thing that I could have actually done. And I'd done well in my grades for those first 12 years of my uh, school as well. So I really look at the worst case and if the worst case wasn't bad enough. The same thing with this PhD thing. I said, I'm going to go on a leave of absence. And if I don't like the industry, and this is 99, the height of the bubble, then I can always go back and, and finish my uh, PhD and, mm. and it wasn't to be. And I think, uh, you know, there's no such thing as an irrational exuberance about a, a decision. Most decisions actually have a worst case attached to them. And mm. I just tell myself, if the worst is not bad enough, then why won't you do it? Yeah, well that's uh, that fortitude has, I'm sure, been important at other junctures in the Nutanix story. So I want to get into that. So you joined uh, Astrodata in a, in a senior engineering role right after Oracle. And that company, I remember meeting with the founder, uh, Tassos? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, that company had a lot of great people at it. Uh, had It was a good company and did well, but the number of great people that came from Astra, it's really remarkable. Was there a moment there that you decided, hey, I've, I've got to go found a new company? Um, what was the spark there that, that led to, ultimately led you to Nutanix? Yeah, it's very interesting. My first startup in the year 2000, where I worked for three years, and then the next startup after Oracle, which was Astrodata, okay. they had a lot of things in common. Both were formed in the thesis that there'll be a new buyer, a new vertical, a new industry. Uh, in the first case, it was XSPs. This is the year 2000, 2001, you know, internet service providers and application service providers and storage service providers and all sorts of service providers that would have a very different consumption need than than the enterprise. And obviously the bubble burst. And then we had to really figure out how do you build a product for the enterprise and how do you have a support model for the enterprise and how do you make it easy and consumable in bite sizes for the enterprise. And there was not enough time left for the first company to really go and repivot. And in the second company, I think we started in a very similar thesis that the internet companies like MySpace, like Facebook, like LinkedIn, they will not use Teradata and Oracle data- databases for warehousing and things like that. So we built this thing, which was SQL compliant and such. And obviously today we call it snowflake computing in right. some sense. You know, So back in the day, there was a need to build things in commodity servers and scale out architecture. But then the financial crisis happened. Mm. And uh, Hadoop happened, you know, open source came about as well. So the developer, uh, rather than rebelling against Oracle and Teradata and going to Aster, went to Hadoop and batch processing and, and such. 
And we had to repivot the company to really build it for the enterprise. And it's again a, as big an effort to really build it for the enterprise with the massive capabilities and the fan out of uh, feature sets and things like that. And it had to be made bite-sized and consumable for the enterprise. So there were some really eerily similar lessons mm. to learn from both these startups. So when we founded Nutanix, I think the goal was to really build uh, and bring these kind of uh, web scale and scale out architectures to the masses, but also learn from Apple and say, what did they do to our personal lives? And how would we apply that to a very nerdy, geeky thing called... Uh, web scale architecture for data centers and such, you know. So I think being able to make it very simple to use and very elegant and bite-sized consumable and building a support model and also getting into embracing the mundaneness of the enterprise, like shipping an appliance as opposed to software, you know, because our whole goal was to bring the consumer cloud architecture to the masses. But then one of the theses of consumer cloud architecture was white boxes. Yep. You know, these were not bezel servers and such. And these were rack mount servers that were commodity hardware. So if you didn't go and support it end to end, then the enterprise was not going to just take your software and stitch it on its own. Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm going to get back a little bit to business model and how it shifted over time for you guys. But I, I want to ask a little bit about your role because Nutanix, you're CEO and you've been CEO from, from day one in addition to, to yep. co-founding the business. Different role than you played at Aster. Was it obvious to you personally that you were going to be a CEO someday? And what have the traits been, uh, characteristics and experiences that have led you to be a CEO? And how do you know if you're, you're going to be good at it? Mm. Well, you know, back in the day when I was doing my undergrad, we had a lot of what we called electives. You know, these are the courses that we would actually go and take. And my undergrad school was very good with uh, what we call liberal arts here. We used to call social studies back in the day. So I t took a lot of uh, courses in psychology and sociology and mm. language and linguistics and obviously a lot of math, which was not really part of the computer science curriculum. There was always this curiosity for people. I mean, I was a pretty happy guy and I would really express myself well and I would, you know, really connect with people. So over time, I think that, you know, just interest in building friendships and, you know, uh, communicating with people and all that really made me who I am, actually. You know? And over time, I realized that it's a combination of people and process and product. You know, this trifecta really matters. You know? mm -hmm. And so the respect for people was already there. I mean, I was obviously a technologist, so I uh, was learning a lot about building enterprise-grade systems and this exposure to Apple made me more consumer-grade and just curiosity about design and elegance and simplicity came. But process was a piece that Oracle taught me a lot about, uh, you know, what does process mean? How do you ship software to enterprises? And finally, at Nutanix, when initially we were thinking about, you know, ERP systems and CRM systems, and I uh, had to make some early calls, and we made some really early calls in like 2011 to build scalable systems. So our initial CRM implementation and NetSuite implementation and, HRMS uh, implementation, Workday and all that has stood the test of time. We wow. never had to change anything. That's over time. incredible. So I think process was a big sort of learning. But, uh, you know, I look at Amazon as a process engineering marvel, you know, and the respect for process is such an important piece of leadership, actually, you know. Very cool. The hyper-converged market, the market you, you guys invented, 
We've had a few other entrepreneurs on the show who have invented categories, created categories. Um, I'm curious, do you wish some days that, gosh, I wish we were just selling into existing category in the early days? Because now others have, you've blazed this trail and others have come in and emulated you over time and your business has evolved. But if you go back to the first couple of years in Nutanix, you created a category. Um, Tell us what that was like what you had to do to really gear it for success and what were some of the challenges in creation of category? Yeah, I think the intent was never to create a category. It just mm-hmm. got created and it was happenstance. I mean, it's just like, what would you call a phone that has a music player built in? I don't think Apple said, we're going to call it a smartphone. You know, they just said, we're going to, you know, it's the new way of consuming things. Mm-hmm. We're going to make the music player into an app. And people can now stream music through the phone. And a phone became an app itself. And over time, a camera came in and a video camera came in. And, you know, the tactile... consumers need to get educated. And I'm sure for your end customers, right, they weren't waking up in the morning with a line item in in their budget for a converged appliance that was going to have storage, that was going to make my life easier. But, like, I had to be convinced of that. I didn't even conceive it. Like, I have a separate storage team. I have a SAN team. I've got, you know, go back to the data center world of your early, you know, the early days of Nutanix. Every company you were selling, I'm sure, had an enterprise data center and had had a storage team, had a compute team, had a networking team, you know, was starting to get into virtualization. So had, had it, you had to sell yeah. them on a new concept. Yeah, and I think you answered the question because in the world of the smartphone or iOS, the workloads mattered. You know, the workload was a camera, a music player, a phone, mm-hmm. uh, an email, App and so those are the workloads. So we had to start with a killer workload. We said, look, the architecture and uh, obviously back then there was no MQ, and this new thing that we're doing, which is web scale engineering and consumer grade design, is a means to an end. The end being running workloads. So can we pick a killer workload to run on? And uh, you know, very serendipitously, uh, this Snowden thing had happened mm. in the federal world and. The federal government had basically said no more physical machines or laptops or desktops to people because peripheral devices actually have the propensity of stealing or, or yep. leaking data and information. So that whole Windows experience had to come to the cloud. And they said, we're going to build clouds for Windows. And it was a massively parallel architecture requirement because desktops are embarrassingly parallel and our architecture is embarrassingly parallel. You can keep adding more machines and you'd get uh, linear performance. So it became a, a very important workload for us. In, you know, in the early days, between federal and, and uh, virtual desktop, we were doing about 60, 70% of our business and that really paid the bills. The good thing is that it also helped build a very honest company because if you didn't have a desktop, you didn't have office workers. And if you didn't have a browser, you couldn't even get to the cloud or the internet or whatever. So it helped us build a lot of very honest things within the company to go uh, pay for the future, actually. you know. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so you built a beautiful product that solved a lot of problems and then found a killer app and somewhat serendipitous found that killer app and were able to, to ride it 
yeah. uh, as the market matured and, and got used to hyperconverged as a Yeah, as a and I think it was concept. a very contrarian thesis because oh, yeah. everybody said Windows is dead and we said long live Windows. Yep. You know, people said iOS and Android is at the edge and Windows has no presence. And, you know, the in the enterprise and even in our personal lives, uh, legacy is very powerful, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, so we embraced the legacy. We took a contrarian approach. We said, look, there's a billion pieces out there. We need to virtualize just a few. And it became a great way to really pay the bills in the first few years. So speaking of paying bills in the first few years, you guys were one of the fastest growing startups in history. I went back and looked at the S1 you filed in 2016. So I don't have the data uh, we did meet a few times, you may may recall, and I wasn't smart enough in your Series B or Series C to to invest. Boy, I should have. But just going back to 2014, which was just the fifth full year of the company's life, you eclipsed 100 million in revenue, which is about as fast as any company's ever really hit that mark from founding, which means the product wasn't out for that whole period of time. So growth was absolutely crazy for you guys. And obviously it's continued, but like in those early years, you really had a tiger by the tail. What kind of challenges did hypergrowth present as a startup and how did you try to manage through that that growth? Yeah, I mean behind all that really rosy story was two or three near death experiences, mm-hmm. you know. I go back to 2011 days when our thesis of really making storage industry into pure software running on top of a hypervisor where we said, look, we don't need proprietary machines to really manage data. It was a very risky thesis. Yes. And in the initial years, uh, first two years, we thought we never not going to survive because underneath us was a platform called VMware that was not ready for as high-end a workload as putting an entire EMC or NetApp uh, in pure software on top. So it took us, I mean, almost six months to resolve that. Again, serendipity, VMware refreshed its uh a big software release happened in January 12. We survived uh, because we really were trying a lot of things to know how will this ever work. And then uh, almost about a year later, we were shifting to total white boxes coming out of Taiwan and we had very little respect for hardware back in the day and it almost killed the company a second time. And uh, that's when we really understood the respect for the hardware software boundary and you know what does it mean to ship appliances and things like that. And finally, uh, almost a year from then, in late 2013, we had a little skirmish going with VMware because they were getting into our space and we were getting into their space. And you know, we were the app, they were the platform, they could do whatever they wanted. And we had to really take a pause and say, how do we take control of our own destiny mm. and build our own platform to really be able to survive, forget about thriving actually. And that was the probably the biggest thing to happen to this company was how we took control of our own destiny. No different than the way Microsoft had to do it back in 89-90 to say that we got to have an operating system mm-hmm. of our own mm-hmm. as opposed to depending on Apple itself. You know, So that became, in fact, uh, had it not been for that, we would not be a company that we are today because we owned our own stack Yes, and we provided an alternative to incumbency. What, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And uh, it sounds like you guys embraced the challenge head on didn't try to get cute, but went right after the the tougher but more durable solution. There. Absolutely. And at the same time, being vulnerable and practical to know that we should not have the arrogance of the platform. You know, it's very important that, I mean, when we're running on top of VMware, we were the app. 
you are not the platform and when you go in there you can't talk about a platform because you've not earned the trust of the enterprise so mm. because trust comes in bite sizes you know in these enduring relationships so how do you really go and work on top of what they have you know you need to walk to where they are mm-hmm. before you walk with them to where you want them to be right has been a very important part of our journey is this notion of empathy the where don't expect it to come to where you are right now over time as they trust you they will very interesting so you're on this great growth curve in 2016 you achieve another milestone you go public i'm curious what it was like for you as ceo and founder of the company to t- take the company public and how your life has changed as you now are a public company you know if you think about the time you spend uh has has your time spent changed are you spending more time or less time with investors than you used to what other transitions did you need to do at the company at your board level or or otherwise mm-hmm. yeah you know i think at the fundamental belief level i want to make it look like going public was not a destination and i've always believed in that let's normalize the situation because otherwise if you think it's a different life you start behaving differently which is the thing that most public companies bemoan like you know oh it's the hamster wheel of quarterly uh, results and you stop being long term focused and so on and a lot of this is really in your head if you felt like you could have that childlike mindset and the growth mindset and you want to balance the sprints of the quarterly results with the marathon of your ambition i think it's totally up to you and this is the paradox of growth is like how do you really walk a tightrope uh, and obviously as you grow bigger and bigger you know you have more families to feed and uh you have more investors to take care of and so on you know the it becomes like a coliseum you know you're in the arena yep and uh there's a lot of people up on the bleachers you know and they don't know what's going on in the arena so communication becomes really important and at the same time i think you have to learn to you know just be thick skinned about things because there'll be a ton of naysayers as you go public as well so we have been very very deliberate about the fact that look being public doesn't mean we change the way we actually be used to be there's a few things you have to change about looking at the investor as a new customer and and that's the way i've reconciled my world is to think of investor as yet another customer who you're selling a product to and they will have requirements of features and capabilities into that product which is our stock symbol and then your customer becomes your investor because mm-hmm. you know uh, we are taking pretty much a lot of the gross profits from our business and plowing back to the business actually and so i think if you make it look like there are two sides of the same coin wall street and main street it wouldn't look like it's a zero zero sum game and you know in in, in uh, fairness developers and and the whole r&d community is moving towards agile processes and mm-hmm. 3 month sprints and things like that i just feel wall street was there like 20 30 40 years ago so That's a good point you know and how do you really not make the sprints be a hack or a bandaid on bandaid for your product and your design it's no different for the agile model of the quarterly results and of being a public company very very unique way of thinking about it yeah i feel like the more things change the more they remain yeah. the same actually and and look you've been public long enough to go through some some pretty significant ups and downs along the way you created a category since you've been public the market shifted to cloud faster i think than anybody would have anticipated 
obviously there's still plenty of spending on on prem and in in enterprise and and colo facilities but the move to the cloud is is significant right and and you've transitioned your business a couple of times you alluded earlier to the fact that you know what the the white box uh, mentality and really making things plug and play and simple for your customer was important early on but you've transitioned as companies have transitioned their spend first kind of from a from a device company to a software business from a software business to a subscription software business that is an incredible set of shifts that you have engineered and you seem to have done them incredibly well i'm curious like what the challenges have been like for you to to engineer those changes and maybe you could talk a little bit about like your team and how you've communicated with your team about those changes and the needs and has everybody been up for the for the ride or have there been you know members of your team who maybe weren't able to make the transition with you in each of those key shifts yeah you know i think this notion of refactoring reengineering uh, reinventing yourself is just as true when you're building an operating system it's like you know when i was at oracle we were in Oracle 10, which by this time, it was already had been rewritten three, four times. And the core engine had been rewritten three, four times. So, you know, if you need to have staying power to be a company that really survived the test of time, you will have to refactor. So what we had to do for a business model was just refactoring because there was a new workload and that new workload was a new consumption model. The public cloud, uh, which basically showed us the way of this new consumption model where the enterprise now had a taste of a trade-off between ownership or access. You know, mm-hmm. do I want ownership of technology or do I want access to technology? And this is like iTunes ownership of music versus Spotify subscription or access to music. And I think that's what's happening in the enterprise right now. Mm-hmm. They're having this discussion on ownership versus access. Yes. And we knew that we had to get on the other side as well, rather than be this ostrich in the sand that thought that everything is going to be ownership which is something that customers own, what would it mean for us to stream our technology over the internet? And uh, a lot of this is cultural. You know, I think uh, for a company that's successful and thinks that it has a DNA to ship software to tens of thousands of sites, how do you get into this other mode of you know, getting into services and cloud and shipping code a lot more often and thinking about security and being a service provider to your customers because now the burden of responsibility and proof is much higher as you become a service provider rather than just be a technology provider, actually. you know. Uh, and we've learned a lot of that stuff. And in the public markets, I think going and talking about the equivalent currency and why this transformation is required, you know, it's a, it's a rite of passage. I mean, uh, I wish we had done it better in the last nine months, but there's so much to be done with sales and the culture shift in sales, not just in developers, but also on the sales side and yes. customer support side. But, you know, it's par for the course. I mean, if we didn't do this thing, mm-hmm. then we would not be looking so good like the way we're looking right now in the next five to 10 years, where now we can go and stream our uh, software on the hyperscaler bare metal servers as well, which the enterprise is asking for because they realize that they'll need the same architecture to work in the public cloud as well. So building this portability, having this kind of uh, secular license model that worked on both sides of the aisle. I mean, mobility is the killer app for multi-cloud and we actually have uh, now a unique single pane of glass that can really transcend the location boundaries of the public cloud and the edge as well. Very cool. 
Very cool. You've, you've set yourself up for, I think, what promises to be a really rosy future. But those transitions, I can see, I can tell you many, many companies are victims of their success and past business models. They have the innovator's dilemma and, and are unable to rip the band-aids off the way you guys have. So kudos to you and the culture you've built here. Certainly not easy to do with such a with a large company and the glow of the public yeah, yeah, uh, spotlight. Think, and the, the courage that's required and also at the same time, you know, you need to breathe well and, you know, not go through the highs and lows of the yep. stock market. You know, the fact that you need to have an average on the uh, euphoria of the stock market mm. as opposed to thinking about every high and every low as being emotionally. I mean, that's the other big thing about companies that go public is how employees become long-term greedy as well. Because entrepreneurs are sort of wired to think long-term. Yes. Many entrepreneurs are uh, wired to think about long-term greed. How do you now build more missionaries out of your new employee base? And then the old ones who have been around with more tenure, they absolutely have that long-term greed yes. uh, capability. But as you get more people, the 5,000th employee and the 10,000th employee, how do you create the long-term greed piece is a big challenge. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit and chat about VMware. Um, you've talked a little bit about VMware. They were an important foundational technology for you early in your early days. You recognized that uh, they were a potential single point of failure and you obviated their value to you. Uh, they've become a competitor. I know you respect them. I saw that you and uh, Sanjay Poonin uh, shared a, a plane together uh, not too long ago on social media, which must have been interesting. But you've said that you view VMware as a computer company, I think, while you view- A compute side company. Compute side company, sorry. And Nutanix is a data design and delivery company. Just help us understand the contrast and how you think about that. And then how do you make sure the, the world, including your employee base, understands how you want to differentiate yourself vis-a-vis -vis your competition? Yeah, you know, I, I think at first I will say that we haven't obviated them as much as uh, we have built something that is an alternative for our customers. Okay. Because if you respect your customers, you realize that, again, as I said, you have to walk over to where they are before they're willing to walk with you to where you want them to be. So walking over to where they are is like, well, I have VMware licenses. Why don't you guys use it? So then we just act like an app. On Just like Microsoft said, do we really need to build a Windows phone or can we just build some apps that people like? And do we really need to build Hyper-V or can we use Linux for a lot of our Azure stuff and so mm. on? So I think you know we are very clear in our heads about how we are a both an app company and a platform company. Many times we are just selling apps on top of someone else's platform. And when we put our software on AWS, we are an app on AWS, the platform. So it's like, what's WeChat? We, is WeChat an app in iOS or is it a platform unto itself? Is Facebook an app in iOS? Or when you, once you go inside Facebook, it's a platform. I think that's the kind of consumer-grade thinking that makes me sleep well, mm. as opposed to, making this look like a zero-sum game. You know, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, and he's written some good things about this in the last several quarters or so. You know, he talks about the infinite game, like how do you need to have an infinite mindset, which is yep. the opposite of the, of the zero-sum mindset, you know. And I think with our competitors, who are also people that we cooperate with when it comes to our joint customers, I just think of it as, uh, you know, we need to go and create value on top of them, underneath them, if that's what it takes. 
Okay. And earlier this year, you held a .dot .next conference, your, your annual user conference. And I was curious to ask about, first of all, uh, I've seen videos of it. It looked like an incredible event celebrating 10 years of uh, history now for Nutanix. And I loved how you celebrated the builders, the dreamers, the believers who've been with you and really staked their careers on, on your vision and, and growth, which was really cool. Uh, that must have been super gratifying. But I'm curious, how long have you been doing that event? How young a company were you when you started? What do you hope to get out of that kind of event? I'm sure it takes a lot of effort and expense to put together. And how do you gauge whether or not it's working? Because a lot of, a lot of yeah, startups it's a think question. about it. I think, you know, when we were six years old in 2015, you know, we had a conundrum whether to do it or not to do it because we didn't know how many people would show up. And 2015 was a pretty mature stage because we had, you know, Filer S1 Prospectus as a six-year-old company. But we said, let's go ahead and do it. You know, we'll, we'll learn if nothing, actually. And it turned out to be the best decision we ever made because there's this power of social proof when it comes to a user conference because folks learn from uh, their peers, you know, their industry peers. Prospects learn from customers before they actually see the spiel from us mm. and so on. So there's a lot here which is very disarming. It makes us vulnerable, but at the same time, it makes us authentic. And that was the biggest value of the user conference. It continues to be, you know, as we get more and more prospects in our conferences, and obviously we use it as a great education platform because customer advocacy, a lot of it is about education and awareness and getting them to basically get, you know, as well-versed in our technology as they could ever be. I think it's turned out to be a great investment for us. Now, we have to constantly go and monitor for, you know, inertia of some kind. You know, we are fine-tuning it a, a lot mm -hmm. to nurture our demand gen funnel and get people to a local place. Because, you know, we don't do just two of these. It's not like there's one in this big city in the U.S. and one in a big city in EMEA. Again, we take them to 50 cities around uh, the world. Okay. So just like our scale-out architecture of the product, we've done a scale-out architecture for our user conference as well. And we are now saying it's a great place for these people to get educated and to learn from each other. Last question for you before we hit the speed round. You wrote a blog post that I found a while ago about the value of having a support system. In particular, you were referring to your spouse and how important a presence she's been in your life and helping power you know, your success and believing in you and trusting you and, and encouraging you. I'm curious, I've heard a lot of founders say it's, it can be a pretty lonely uh, thing to, to start a company and then run it. A any advice you have for others who, you know, even if they're not married, maybe have a significant other or uh, their family, how do you, what do you tell people and what advice can you give about the importance of, of strong ties around you yeah, I think it goes without saying that, uh, you know, we are all at war of some kind. You know, when we go disrupt uh, an incumbency, create a new category, we are at war. But you can't be at war everywhere, including at home. You need to be at peace at home, you know. And that can only happen if both you and your significant other are really in lockstep. Because it's not just the entrepreneur that's taking the risk. It's the entrepreneur's significant other yeah. or partner as well. So, I mean, I can't say this without making it sound cliched, but I, had it not been for my wife, I don't think I'd be here. You know, we had three children in the last uh, nine years, and I think she's taking care of another venture, which is, you know, taking care of the family yeah. and 
you know, just completing our family uh, overall. And I mean, I travel the world a lot, especially in B2B, you need to travel a oh, lot. Yeah. Show your face in front of customers. So I, I can't overemphasize the importance of really, you know, the fact that there is joy when you go home and with children. I mean, that's one of the other things that I was thinking, we were thinking 10 years ago, should we postpone having a family and everything? And I know I have a, a cousin who did a, good exit with Nextag, which is a comparison oh, shopping sure. engine. He was yeah. a founder CEO of that company. And I asked him and he's like, you know, you'll be a better entrepreneur once you become a father because you learn to be patient. And Interesting. I think there's no a more powerful virtue than just, you know, having a consistent emotion uh, when you really run a company. So being able to breathe better and being able to have a consistent emotional uh, disposition in front of your board and investors and employees and customers is really, really important. And I think uh, that family experience teaches you a lot. Words of wisdom. I like it. Okay. Dheeraj, you've hit the speed round. Uh, you're in the hot seat. So I'm just going to ask a couple of quick questions and just name the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, first, do you have a favorite book, article, or movie you, you talked about an author you like uh, that you recommend for other founders? Two movies, uh, Darkest Hour and The Post. Uh, uh, both great movies. Uh, I can't tell you how much I learned from both of them. And Darkest Hour gives me the goosebumps. I watch it like twice or thrice a year huh. because the answer is with the people. It's not in the Senate, it's with the people. And The Post equally so, like such a powerful movie when you know people and naysayers underestimate who you are and the kind of tough decisions you need to make. Another uh, giver of goosebumps to me, actually, you know. Book, uh, learned a lot from Sapiens. Um, you know, I would read it again. And, One of my uh, favorites. Yeah, and in fact, uh, just there's so much to learn from history. Overall, I'm just a big history buff. Great. How about a piece of advice you wish you'd gotten before you started Nutanix? Maybe I would take myself 25 years ago if I'd learned two more languages, like maybe German and Japanese. Mm. I, I'd really been a better business person and entrepreneur because again it goes back to being able to relate to cultures outside english speaking cultures and i think between mandarin japanese and german there's a lot to learn that's great my younger daughter's taking mandarin and and uh, yeah i think i think there's it's a, it's a difficult language but there's hopefully will pay off she'll be a her. great bridge between all these trade wars we are seeing here exactly <laughs> okay uh lastly you've had a tremendous run over the last decade with Nutanix. What do you see in the next decade with the company? Where do you think you'll be 10 years from now when we do our 300th episode of Founder Real Talk and have you back? Well, we're still a very small company. There's still so much more to do. I look at 10 years as a new zero. So we kind of reset the clock saying, you know, what are the next 10 years mean? And our vision, the good thing is it hasn't changed. It used to be called uh, make infrastructure invisible. And the word invisible is timeless and I think it's never a destination. So now we say make computing invisible mm -hmm. and we've added the epithet anywhere, you know, whether it's okay. edge or core or public cloud, can we really make ourselves ubiquitous where we're still going and providing an amazing experience of invisible infrastructure to our customers? That's really cool. It, it retains the past, but extends your vision. I love Absolutely. it. Well, good luck to you. I'm sure that the, the next 10 years will bring in incredible adventure and nothing but good things for Nutanix. Thanks so much for, for joining us today, Diraj. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>